So the topic tonight is money and livelihood, work. Um, I found it to be really powerful when I heard people's associations with money out loud. I've been reflecting on just the sheer magnitude that, in effect, that money has on our day-to-day lives and you know, our relationship to value and worth and wealth and our relationship to consumption and our relationship to generosity and support and property. Really, so many areas of my day-to-day life is spent in some form in the realm of exchange and value and indirectly at least related to money, working. So some fun facts. Uh, Americans work longer hours for more weeks during the year than the inhabitants of any other industrialized country. A higher percentage of the population is employed here and Americans spend more money per, per person than anyone else on the planet. <clears throat> a person's relationship to money, earning and spending it, takes up more time than any other activity. So statistically speaking, money is quite literally our biggest relationship that we have. I think we spend somewhere around a third of our life working, right? And then we spend even more time buying things and saving up for things and going on vacations, which cost money. And so do we consider our relationship to work and money to be a part of our spiritual practice? From a Buddhist perspective, the Buddha included livelihood, work, as a part of our day-to-day practice. Buddhist teaching largely is a path of practice that's interested at looking closely into the causes and conditions of suffering and disease in our lives and untangling the often reflexive and unnoticed habits that cause this type of suffering. So we want to be honest about the ways in which we experience even the nuances, the subtle disease or discomforts of life. You know, and what are the causes and conditions of happiness and well-being in our lives? And if we're spending this much time interacting with work and money, that this is an area and a field of reflection I think is really, really important. Actually, there's so much for me to say about money that I spent uh, hours preparing five pages of notes and just felt more confused at the end of it than when I started. Because there's so much nuance to this, you know. So if we're looking at the causes and conditions of disease, stress, or suffering in our lives, if we're bringing the shadow part of, part of our life into our awareness, and we're willing to look at and be honest about the ways that we struggle together, uh, two things more than anything else, I think, are in our face, and causes of suffering and stress. And those are, they say, romances and finances. And I think that the reason for this is because these are both very, very strong drives. On one hand, sexuality is the drive to 
procreate. It's the drive to find bond, connection, to have offspring, to have a tribe, which means safety and security. So it's a very strong drive. On the other hand, we have a very strong drive for security, uh, to compete and to survive in general, for being able to feed and offer shelter. Uh, and there are four reasons that I kind of could come up with that I think that money is so challenging. And one is because we've been conditioned to find meaning and purpose through finances. Right? For example, when you ask someone, what do you do for a living? Just thinking about that question. What do you do for a living? What is your life? Well, I'm an architect for my life. Right? I'm a teacher. I'm a and then we have these meaning and purpose. These roles are really powerful. Thinking about the hierarchy of, you know, am I more willing to listen to or to trust someone that says they're a doctor versus someone that says that they're a janitor? You know? And that we have, whether we like it or not, or whether we've worked really hard to rebel against these ideologies culturally in our conditioning, which affects us all to some degree, we have developed meaning and purpose around money. We've also developed our sense of security, like I said before, our sense of security around money. Money is a storehouse of value. It's a thing that we all agreed on as a thing, and it stores value in it. At a primal level, then, having money is, uh, in the bank, signifies the likelihood for our survival. So it's kind of that instinct of looking at the bank account and how close am I to running out. That's a very intense, I feel like primordial feeling. I don't know if you've ever looked at when you get real close or when you're in the negative, right? It's terrifying. It's terrifying. And the reality is, is that for a lot of people in this country, probably disproportionately underrepresented in this room, but for the lar you know, large portion of this country, that is a daily reality, is that conditioning around survival. And so that that's another reason why money can be challenging. A third is it's how we experience uh, belongingness, right? Money and work roles create positions of Belongingness, Like I said before, our roles and identities. Also social clubs, country clubs, being able to have, you know, be a high roller at the casino, being able, money buys power and buys belongingness, right? Also, in opposition, we have the belongingness of against, right? So there's also the other. Uh, I grew up going to... You know, most of my childhood was spent skating. I'd go to the skate park every day for hours and hours and hours, every day, all day. And it was, my family had money. It was very unpopular for my family to roll up in their new car, you know, and to, uh, you know, and to have money. So even our belongingness around having or not having, 
And money is also how we experience pleasure. Money buys us experiences of you know, pleasure. We have reward centers in our brain that really reward us for things that trigger dopamine and norepinephrine for the Ben and Jerry's ice cream, for the drugs and alcohol, for the sex, for all of these things. And when we have money, we have more access to these things. Good food, comforts, like uh, going to the spa, getting a massage, hobbies, vacation, so forth. So as lay practitioners, meaning non-monks, one of the things that I think I, you know, I'm still sorting through this myself, but I'm reflecting on is that I'm making a choice in some way to participate in this system of money. I don't think it's as much of a choice for some people as it is for others. And there are monastics, there are people and practitioners of the Buddhist Dharma that have made a decision intentionally to because romances and finances are so challenging to completely wipe their hands of those experiences <laughs> and to take up robes and to, uh, you know, not deal with money and not deal with masturbation or intercourse. They still work with sexuality because it's a very human experience. So by choosing, in a sense, and again, I think that this is debatable, I would say I would give a lot of weight to people that say that we don't have as much of a choice, but by choosing in some extent to participate in money and being a lay person in the world, uh, there's a responsibility that comes with including that as a part of our spiritual practice because it does take up so much of my life. So the reason why I like contemplative practice and the sitting down and, you know, kind of reflecting is even though I participate in, you know, the economy in this way, I don't spend a whole lot of time really thinking about it. And part of this is to bring forward this reflection. So what is money? Money at its base is something we socially constructed. Uh, I wish I brought this book. David Loy wrote a book, I think, called Work, Sex, Money, Karma, or something like that. And he basically talks about how worthless the actual physical dollar is, and it's really funny. He talks about how you could, like, burn it for warmth, but it's not even that good for that. And, um, you know, we kind of all just decided that this is what it is and that we're going to put value in this thing. This has been interesting for me recently. I've... Uh, uh, made a decision to invest in cryptocurrency. Anyone know what cryptocurrency is? Like Bitcoin and stuff like that. Uh, and the idea behind these cryptocurrencies, what it is is basically it's a currency that's not tied to any government. It's based on a mathematical equation, meaning that it's incredibly stable and it doesn't go up and down. I'm not telling you to invest in <laughs> cryptocurrency. All right, please don't hear that. Uh, but it's, you know, it's pretty stable because it doesn't require, it doesn't fluctuate necessarily based on one government system. It's, it's more of a global, you know, open currency. But it's funny because it's only, and we're seeing because it's at the beginning of some of these, 
It's uh, we're seeing like the markets fluctuate because of people are just valuing it more on some days and are pulling out and not valuing it on some days. And we try, kind of just create value in this thing. So it's socially construction has four uh, functions. I'll just go over these real quick because I think it's somewhat interesting but not too helpful. One, m money functions as a medium of exchange, meaning it's how we exchange value. Here's this, you give me that, right? Uh, it's a storehouse of value, meaning that I know $10 is $10, $100 is $100. We store value in it. It's a capital for investment. So money is also how we make more money, right? We have whole fucking industries that all they do is just make more money from money. That's it. They don't provide water, air, shelter, anything else. They just make more money for money. And again, I'm not judging. You know, we have to have economy, but it's an interesting phenomenon. It's a capital for investment. Uh, money is also a symbol of self-security. So it's where we draw self-value from and our sense of security from. Having money means I'm okay. It means I'm doing good. It means I'm compared to other people, you know, better or less. Our relationship to money says a lot about what we value. I like that reflection. Like if I was to bring a pie chart, you know, I'm a visual person. Forward, like what do I spend most of my money on? You know, and how does that reflect my attitudes about money and the value of money and wealth and success and all these things. So there's so much to say here about how to work with it and the nuances, but in general I want to start by looking at, you know, how do we work with money as a spiritual practice? And I think the first thing that the Buddha always emphasizes is to look at our intentions and motivations around our actions. The Buddha said that you know, intention is the forerunner for all of our other actions, through our speech, through our action, our direct behaviors. And so mindfulness helps us to get more attuned to and in touch with our intentions and motivations behind things. And to be really honest and clear about our intentions. So there are a few mentalities about money I kind of sorted out. Uh, that I think are somewhat interesting to look at. And the first is what I call the hungry ghost mentality. And this is the mentality around money to constantly calculate and compare, to strive for more, to have more consumption, to work harder, to get to have. The second is a poverty mentality, which is money shouldn't be spent Opportunities are limited. Any success is temporary. We better play it safe. This is the counting or pennies. The third is an abundance mentality, which is everything will be provided for. I don't need to worry about it. I call this the spiritual bypass. Sometimes we can have this. The universe will provide. <laughs> right? It's all good. The great benevolent source will pay my taxes or my bills or, you know. 
And then an avoidant mentality. Money is bad. Capitalism is bad. Don't want to engage in it. Don't want to think about it. I'm against it. So the first I want to look at is the avoidant mentality. And the reason is, is because I also lend myself towards uh, fuck this, I want out. <laughs> and it's common also in spiritual communities to have this kind of perspective of money that it's evil, uh, that it is bad, you know, that we shouldn't have it, that if you do have it, you're not spiritual. The first thing I want to say, and there's a little bit of irony in this, is they did a study uh, whether money can buy happiness, and it turns out it can. They said that uh, each dollar increase makes a big difference in reducing negative emotions for people in the $20,000 a year income bracket. And it continues to go up your level of happiness or your decrease of negative emotions until about the $80,000 a year income bracket. And then the reduction of negative emotions completely levels off and disappears around $200,000 a year. And then the bell curve actually slopes back down and the degree of uh, unhappiness or the degree of happiness teeters off. And I like this. The irony is that the researcher that did this study's name is Clinging Smith, which is hilarious. <clears throat> so, um, you know, I think it's important to not completely look at money as an evil thing and to watch this avoidant tendency we may have out of our insecurities and fears and to, you know, look at our insecurities and fears around money and to try to use the practices to creatively engage within it. The Buddha said there are four kinds of happiness to be experienced around money. One is the happiness of being able to provide your, for yourself through your own efforts. And the happiness of being able to enjoy wealth and share wealth with others. This is being able to acquire money. He describes these first two, the happiness of being able to provide for yourself through your own efforts and the happiness of being able to enjoy wealth and share your wealth with others. One of the ways he describes this is acquiring wealth by energetic striving, amassed by the strength of her arms, earned by the sweat of her brow, righteous wealth righteously attained. So he says that there's like some you know, real joy or happiness. It's not the end-all, be-all. It's maybe not this unworldly happiness of living a spiritual life, but that there is some just, you know, basic happiness of being able to work hard, you know, and to live with our integrity and to earn our living in a way that, and this is one of the other points, is without blame, not feeling ashamed of or regretful in the ways that we make a living. And one of the, interestingly, and I know this is a really hot topic uh, in the U.S., is one of the joys is the happiness of being able to live without debt. I myself have been in debt at times. Uh, 
And many of us are currently and have large amounts of debt. And so again, watching the impact of this reflection, not as a judgment for how we're doing, you know, but looking at yeah, the freedom that we have when we're able to work towards debtlessness. And for some of that, us, that will be possible. But it's one of the things that the Buddha outlines, which I found interesting. Um, another teaching that talks about this avoidant mentality that sometimes... I know I can have around money is the teaching of uh, this rich person comes to the Buddha and says, you know, hey, you're a monk, you've given up money, uh, you've, take up, you've taken up robes, you rely entirely on the generosity of the community to feed you, and I see how joyful, how happy you are, and I have all these responsibilities, and it's so hard, should I give up money? So he kind of asked the Buddha this question, like, should I just not screw with this stuff? And this is the whole discourse. I want to read it. I switched genders around. Uh, A rich woman once came to the Buddha and said, I see that you are the awakened one, and I'd like to open my mind to you and ask your advice. My life is full of work, and having made a great deal of money, I am surrounded by care. I employ many people who depend on me to be successful. However, I enjoy my work and I like working hard. But having heard your followers talk of the bliss of a hermit's life and seeing you as one who gave up a kingdom in order to become a homeless wanderer and find the truth, I wonder if I should do the same. I long to do what is right and to be a blessing to my people. Should I give up everything to find the truth? The Buddha replied, The bliss of a truth-seeking life is attainable for anyone who follows the path of unselfishness. If you cling to your wealth, it is better to throw it away than to let it poison your heart. But if you don't cling to it, but use it wisely, then you will be a blessing to people. It's not wealth and power that enslave people, but the clinging to wealth and power. My teaching does not require anyone to become homeless or resign to the world unless she wants to, but it does require everyone to free themselves from the illusion of selfishness and to act with integrity while giving up her craving and clinging to life. So like all things Dharma, The suffering that we talk about in here is often in our relationship to things, not the things themselves. So this is why we reflect, you know, how can I creatively engage? What is my relationship? Where does this conditioning come from? How do I interact with money? Not to judge ourselves and not to use this practice as another place where we can beat ourselves up about how we could do better or how we should be better but to set an intention because, again, the most powerful part of the practice is our intention, our motivation. So that's the avoidant mentality. I just want to talk about uh, one more of the mentalities, which is the hungry ghost. So in Buddhist cosmology, there is this 
idea that you can be born into different realms of experience. And so some religious Buddhists believe that this is uh, meaning multiple lives and that you can be born again after this life into different realms, one of the realms being the human realm. But I, as more of a uh, non-religious Buddhist, maybe, if that word fits, uh, like to look at this as psychological states that we can be born into maybe in just a day. We can go through all of them, right? And one of these realms that we're born into, uh, a state of mind or a frame of mind, is the realm of the hungry ghost. The realm of the hungry ghost is described as a giant person, huge body, long skinny neck, and just a pinhole mouth. So this person... (laughs) can't feed themselves enough to satiate the hunger of the body, right? And I'm, if I reflect, like, I'm in this state a lot of the time, (laughs) you know, I call this the, uh, I'd be happier once I got mentality, or I need to have got to have, or the if only, right? That kind of constant chronic, unquenchable thirst. Plato says that poverty is not the absence of goods, but rather the overabundance of desire. And again, he's not talking about oppressive systematic poverty. He's talking about our mentality, poverty mentality. He says poverty is not the absence of goods, but rather the overabundance of desire. This is that I'd be happier once I got this constant needing to have something. I need to have something. I need to have the next car. I need to have the next house. I need to have the upgrade. I want to read this by Daniel Neistat. He says, as we navigate through our day, we're constantly measuring and calculating. Each meal and snack is an invisible tally of calories and grams of fat. Each chore has a scorecard. This mindset influences our approach to the spiritual path as well. We are forever bargaining with ourselves. We tell ourselves, if I meditate for three hours today, I can skip the next two days. The effect of this calculating watcher in the mind is a state of mind that's constantly comparing and measuring, thus furthering our sense of separation from the inherent richness of our world and from spiritual teaching. This results in a mentality of poverty, a sense of incompleteness, inadequacy, and hunger. Buddhist writings describe this psychology as the realm of the hungry ghost, a state where everything that appears in one's life is regarded as something to be consumed or collected. The hungry ghost in all of us brings up a question. How much wealth should we possess? But the more important question may be, what constitutes wealth? So part of the practice here is to reflect on what constitutes wealth. What is worth consuming if we're going to consume? Another way to work with money is in the practice of renunciation and generosity. These are one of the primary intentions that we're trying to develop in practice is First, renunciation is the practice of not needing anything extra. It's the 
called the result of renunciation, it's called the joy of renunciation, right? This is the experience of if you've ever given up something that's been really hard, like for me, nicotine is, was really hard to give up. It's the experience a couple months, three months, four months down the road <laughs> where you feel the joy of not needing to have something extra, right? It's called unworldly pleasure. It's not the pleasure of, you know, a snack or something that we get through the world, which is also pleasant, but it's the unworldly pleasure of having given up the joy of renunciation. So part of the practice around money is looking at, at, you know, what do we not need? What can we practice not needing anything extra And of course, I'm a big fan of the practice of generosity with money. Uh, Part of my reflection when I first did this exercise that we did tonight is my parents' relationship to money was that my mom always, she had this abundance mentality. It would always be there, it's always going to be provided, and so she would spend. And my dad... had this poverty mentality that there wasn't enough and that we needed to count and we needed to make sure that you know we're going to run out he literally that's his kind of main functioning around money is that he's going to run out and so I inherited more than anything a confusing relationship to money (laughs) because on one hand I love to fucking spend it and feel like it's always going to be there but on the other hand I had this gnawing fear that it was going to run out. And over time, and I asked this question, how have our habits around money changed over time? I've lent myself more to my dad's relationship, this poverty mentality of saving, of being really frugal, of only buying. You know, I think for a period of time, I'd only go to buy clothes once a year. I'd try to get my mom, like when I would go down to Atlanta, I'd try to like get her to buy me clothes. <laughs> and I'd only spend my money really on food, and that's it. I never bought anything, really. And so part of my practice early on, I actually learned from my mentor, my teacher, Dave, is I started seeing him and even Noah Levine, when I'd go hang out with them, being really generous. You know, and it was almost like a game. It's kind of funny, like early on, six years ago, they'd see who can be more generous. You know? <laughs> it was almost this like identity and generosity. But, uh, but it actually taught me a lot. And it's changed, working with generosity around money has changed my relationship to this poverty mentality. The Buddha said that if you knew how valuable and important another human life was, you wouldn't go a single meal without sharing it with, with someone else. That the ability to support one another, the ability, you know, generosity through money, but also through resources. It's really the work of lay people. That's, as non-monastic Buddhists, our practice is to be of service. I believe, and I don't know, I'm holding out this belief. I haven't necessarily heard it anywhere. I believe that we can fully awaken through the path of service. And so this goes all the way from 
you know, the giving of money and resources, but the giving of time, you know, helps to combat that mentality. And then one that I'm just going to name because it's so big and literally I could talk for the next five, six, we could talk for the next five, six weeks about it is watching how we consume. So this is a way of working with money, watching how we consume and participate in systems of harm and oppression. So looking at what we support by making a decision to buy something, we make a decision to support what we're buying. And so the, you know, treatment of animals, the environment, you know, labor practices, uh, systems of racial oppression. So there's a lot to how we consume. There's a lot to reflect on. And so the last piece I want to talk about is livelihood and occupations. Very tied in. You know, we spend so much of our time at work and working. And looking at, again, going off this theme of how we participate by consuming what we participate through our job. You know, what are we spending our time doing? What is that effort or that karma, that action that we are building going towards and it's very nuanced I mean like I shared sometime I think maybe the study series I talked about you know I work in the mental health field I'm a social worker and our uh, society doesn't value (laughs) paying social workers that well I don't know if you know this but it's true But it does value making sure they're educated well. Uh, You know, and I found myself working in the field of, uh, you know, I've worked here. This is a treatment center. Uh, I've worked at various addictions treatment centers, co-occurring mental health centers. And it's very nuanced to look at how, you know, ethics from the Buddhist perspective is all about non-harm. And non-harm is situational. And it requires reflection. It requires an interest in what is harm. And part of the nuance of working with a skillful livelihood is looking at how we engage within our job. Being alive, being a human being, does not set itself up for not causing harm. Being alive, being a human being, sets itself up for causing harm in some way, shape, and form. But it's about, again, looking at our actions, looking intently at how we operate within the systems that we work in. <clears throat> so some of the nuances, you know, how can we uh, work skillfully in our job to both find fulfillment for ourselves and to be of service to the awakening of all beings? So there are aspects of the jobs that, that I can emphasize that are supportive and impactful for others. How much time do I spend during my job working on something that isn't necessarily impactful? And can I, I don't know, but can I shift that? Can I focus more, for example, for me when I'm doing group therapy? Can I be more present? Can I be more engaged? Can I, you know, I have an hour. Sometimes I have to give myself a pep talk. 
because I'm doing this, I'm doing group therapy 16, 17, 20 times a week. You know, I see 300, 400 people a week. And so, like, giving myself a pep talk before I go in, all right, dude, <laughs> you know, you don't want to be here, <laughs> and you don't have the patience, and you don't want to hear these people complain about their lives. Uh, but, you know, how can I be most impactful? And I've had to switch how I do things. You know, sometimes then what I have to do is I have to be more just receptive and listening. I'm not going to talk that much. I'm going to let them talk because I don't have it in me. You know, sometimes I need to set healthy boundaries, so on and so forth. So looking at the nuances of how we engage in our jobs. Also looking at occupations uh, that are maybe directly causing harm. <clears throat> The Buddha offered a few. These are 2,600 years ago, some that he offered. Uh, selling weapons, selling living bean, beings, not living beans, living beings. <laughs> selling weapons, selling living beings, meat production, selling intoxicating drink and drugs, and selling poison. I think it's safe to say that all five of these don't really necessarily, you know, produce and support health and well-being for all and to not have judgment if you're in one of these professions to consider the, the impact of your job you know to bring that into the awareness that hard truth and to consider what we want to do about that the Buddha I really love this he said also to avoid livelihood or making a living by deceit treachery soothsaying trickery or usury Deceit, treachery, soothsaying, trickery, and usury. So I think the emphasis is here, what are we going to do within our life? Not how are we going to make a living. What are we going to do within our life? And I, I you know, have given many talks on livelihood, and several times people in the community have made a decision to change their jobs. <laughs> And I'm not against that, actually. I think it can be valuable if this is something that usually you know if it's something you've been thinking about for a while and it's not something that, uh, you know, we have to be careful because we can't just up and leave and we have to be careful because sometimes we just need to get by and we just keep doing our job and find a way to be impactful. You know, in service professions, how can we engage with customers in a way that's impactful? You know, in professions of finance and accounting, how can we support uh, businesses that are impactful? In jobs of retail and, you know, all the ways that we work as musicians and entertainers and, you know, all of these things. <clears throat> so I want to close with this. It's by Walt Whitman. Last week I talked about sex, and it's ironic because I think Walt Whitman had some uh, questionable sexual activity. But here he's speaking about livelihood. And he tells you what you should do. So if you're wondering what you should do, here he's going to tell you. This is what you should do. <laughs> Love the earth and sun and the animals. Despise riches. Give alms to everyone that asks. Stand up for the stupid and crazy. Devote your income and labor to others. Hate tyrants. Argue not concerning God. Have patience and indulgence toward the people. Take off your hat to nothing known or unknown or to any man or number of men. Go freely with powerful, uneducated people. 
and with the young and with the mothers of families. Read these leaves in the open air every season of every year of your life. Re-examine all you have been told at school or church or in any book. Dismiss whatever insults your own soul. And your very flesh shall be a great poem and have the richest fluency, not only in its words, but in the silent lines of its lips and face and between the lashes of your eyes and in every motion and joint of your body. 